Section 22 of Hard Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joseph Ugaretz. Hard Times by Charles Dickens. Section 22. Book 3. Chapters 8 and 9. Chapter 8. Philosophical. They went back into the booth, Sleary shutting the door to keep intruders out. Bitzer, still holding the paralyzed culprit by the collar, stood in the ring, blinking at his old patron through the darkness of the twilight. "'Bitzer,' said Mr. Gradgrind, broken down and miserably submissive to him, "'have you a heart?' "'The circulation, sir,' returned Bitzer, smiling at the oddity of the question, "'couldn't be carried on without one.' No man, sir, acquainted with the facts established by Harvey relating to the circulation of the blood, can doubt that I have a heart. Is it accessible, cried Mr. Gradgrind, to any compassionate influence? It is accessible to reason, sir, returned the excellent young man, and to nothing else. They stood looking at each other, Mr. Gradgrind's face as white as the pursuer's. What motive, even what motive in reason, can you have for preventing the escape of this wretched youth, said Mr. Gradgrind, and crushing his miserable father? See his sister here. Pity us. Sir, returned Bitzer, in a very businesslike and logical manner, since you ask me what motive I have in reason for taking young Mr. Tom back to Coketown, it is only reasonable to let you know. I have suspected young Mr. Tom of this bank robbery from the first. I had had my eye upon him before that time, for I knew his ways. I have kept my observations to myself, but I have made them, and I have got ample proofs against him now, besides his running away, and besides his own confession, which I was just in time to overhear. I had the pleasure of watching your house yesterday morning, and following you here. I am going to take young Mr. Tom back to Coketown, in order to deliver him over to Mr. Bounderby. "'Sir, I have no doubt whatever that Mr. Bounderby will then promote me to young Mr. Tom's situation, and I wish to have his situation, sir, for it will be a rise to me, and will do me good.' "'If this is solely a question of self-interest with you,' Mr. Gradgrind began. I, "'I beg your pardon for interrupting you, sir,' returned Bitzer, "'but I am sure you know that the whole social system is a question of self-interest. What you must always appeal to is a person's self-interest. It's your only hold.' we are so constituted. I was brought up in that catechism when I was very young, sir, as you are aware. What sum of money, said Mr. Gragrind, will you set against your expected promotion? Thank you, sir, returned Bitzer, for hinting at the proposal, but I will not set any sum against it. Knowing that your clear head would propose that alternative, I have gone over the calculations in my mind, and I find that to compound a felony, even on very high terms indeed, would not be as safe and good for me as my improved prospects in the bank. Bitzer, said Mr. Gradgrind, stretching out his hands as though he would have said, See how miserable I am. Bitzer, I have but one chance left to soften you. You were many years at my school. If, in remembrance of the pains bestowed upon you there, you can persuade yourself in any degree to disregard your present interest and release my son, I entreat and pray you to give him the benefit of that remembrance. I really wonder, sir, rejoined the old pupil, in an argumentative manner, to find you taking a position so untenable. My schooling was paid for. It was a bargain, and when I came away the bargain ended." was a fundamental principle of the Gradgrind philosophy, that everything was to be paid for, 
nobody was ever on any account to give anybody anything, or to render anybody help without purchase. Gratitude was to be abolished, and the virtues springing from it were not to be. Every inch of the existence of mankind, from birth to death, was to be a bargain across a counter. And if we didn't get to heaven that way, it was not a political-economical place, and we had no business there. I don't deny, added Bitzer, that my schooling was cheap, but that comes right, sir. I was made in the cheapest market, and have to dispose of myself in the dearest. He was a little troubled here by Louisa and Sissy crying. Pray don't do that, said he. It's of no use doing that. It, it only worries. You seem to think that I have some animosity against young Mr. Tom, whereas I have none at all. I am only going, on the reasonable grounds I have mentioned, to take him back to Coketown. If he was to resist, I should set up the cry of stop thief, but he won't resist. You may depend upon it. Mr. Sleary, who with his mouth open and his rolling eye as immovably jammed in his head as his fixed one, had listened to these doctrines with profound attention, here stepped forward. Squire, you know perfectly well, and your daughter knoweth perfectly well, better than you, because I said it to her, that I didn't know what your son had done, and that I didn't want to know, I said it was better not, though I only thought then that it was some skylarking. However, this young man, having made it known to be a robbery of a bank, wife Affa, furious thing, must too furious a thing for me to compound, as this young man hath very properly called it. Consequently, squire, you mustn't quarrel with me if I take this young man's side, and say he's right, and there's no help for it. But I tell you what I'll do, squire, I'll drive your son and this young man over to the rail, and prevent exposure here. I can't consent to do more, but I'll do that. Fresh lamentations from Louisa, and deeper affliction on Mr. Gradgrind's part, followed this desertion of them by their last friend. But Sissy glanced at him with great attention, nor did she in her own breast misunderstand him. As they were all going out again, he favored her with one slight roll of his movable eye, desiring her to linger behind. As he locked the door, he said excitedly, the squire stood by you, Cecilia, and I'll stand by the squire. More than that, this is a precious rascal, and belongs to that blundering cove that my people nearly pissed out a window. It'll be a dark night. I've got a horse that'll do anything but speak. I've got a pony that'll go fifteen mile an hour with childeth driving of him. I've got a dog that'll keep man to one place four and twenty hours. Get a word with the young squire. Tell him, when he seeth our horse begin to dance, not to be afraid of being spilt, but to look out for a pony gig coming up. Tell him, when he seeth that gig close by, to jump down, and it'll take him off at a rattling pace. If my dog let this young man stir a peg on foot, I give him leave to go. And if my horse ever stirth from that spot where he begins a dancing till the morning, I don't know him. Sharp's the word. The word was so sharp that in ten minutes Mr. Childers, sauntering about the marketplace in a pair of slippers, had his cue, and Mr. Sleary's equipage was ready. It was a fine sight to behold the learned dog barking round it, and Mr. Sleary instructing him with his one practicable eye that Bitzer was the object of his particular attentions. Soon after dark they all three got in and started. The learned dog, a formidable creature, already pinning Bitzer with his eye and sticking close to the wheel on his side, that he might be ready for him in the event of his showing the slightest disposition to alight. 
The other three sat up in the inn all night in great suspense. At eight o'clock in the morning Mr. Sleary and the dog reappeared, both in high spirits. "'All right, Squire,' said Mr. Sleary. "'Your son may be aboard a thip by this time. Childerth took him off, an hour and a half after we left there last night. The horse danced the polka till he was dead beat. He would have waltzed if he hadn't been in harness. And then I gave him the word he went to sleep comfortable. When that precious young rascal said he'd go forward afoot, the dog hung on to his neck handkerchief with all four legs in the air, and pulled him down and rolled him over, though he'd come back into the drag. And there he sat, till I turned the horse's head at half-past six this morning. Mr. Gradgrind overwhelmed him with thanks, of course, and hinted, as delicately as he could, at a handsome remuneration in money. "'I don't want money myself, Squire, but Childerth is a family man, and if you was to like to offer him a five-pound note, it mightn't be unacceptable. Likewise, if you was to stand a collar for the dog, or a, or a set of bells for the horse, I should be very glad to take em. Brandy and water I always take.' He had already called for a glass, and now called for another. "'If you wouldn't think it going too far, Squire, to make a little spread for the company,' At about three and thick ahead, uh, not reckoning loth, it would make him happy. All these little tokens of his gratitude Mr. Gradgrind very willingly undertook to render, though he thought them far too slight, he said, for such a service. Very well, Squire, then, if you'll only give a horse-riding a, a bespeak whenever you can, you'll more than balance the account. Now, Squire, if your daughter will excuse me, I would like one parting word with you. Louisa and Sissy withdrew into an adjoining room. Mr. Sleary, stirring and drinking his brandy and water as he stood, went on. Squire, you don't need to be told that dogs is wonderful animals. Their instinct, said Mr. Gradgrind, is surprising. Whatever you call it, and I'm blessed if I know what to call it, said Sleary, it is astonishing. The way in which a dog'll find you, the distance he'll come. His scent, said Mr. Gradgrind, being so fine. I'm blessed if I know what to call it, repeated Sleary, shaking his head. But I have had dogs find me, Squire, in a way that made me think whether that dog hadn't gone to another dog and said, You don't happen to know a person of the name of Sleary, do you? Person of the name of Sleary, in the horse-riding way? Stout man, game eye? And whether that dog mightn't have said, well, I can't say I know him myself, but I know a dog that I think would be likely to be acquainted with him. And whether that dog mightn't have thought it over and said, Sleary, Sleary, oh yes, to be sure. A friend of mine mentioned him to me at one time. I can get you his address directly. In consequence of my being afore the public and going about so much, you see, there must be a number of dogs acquainted with me, Squire, that I don't know. Mr. Gradgrind seemed to be quite confounded by this speculation. "'Anyway,' said Sleary, after putting his lips to his brandy and water, "'is fourteen months ago, Squire, since we was at Fester. "'We was getting up our children in the wood one morning "'when there come into our ring by the stage door a dog. "'He had travelled a long way. "'He was in a very bad condition. "'He was lame and pretty well blind. "'He went round to our children one after another,' as if he was a seeking for a child he knowed. And then he come to me, and throwed himself up behind, and stood on his two forelegs, weak as he was, and then he wagged his tail and died. Squire, that dog was merry legs. 
Sissy's father's dog. The Theoyeth fathereth old dog. Now, Thquire, I can take my oath from my knowledge of that dog that that man was dead and buried before that dog came back to me. Jothfine and Childeth and me talked it over a long time whether I should write or not, but we agreed no. There's nothing comfortable to tell. Why unfettle her mind and make her unhappy? Though whether her father baithly deserted her, or whether he broke his own heart alone, rather than pull her down along with him, never will be known now. Squire, no, no, till not till we know how the dogs findeth us out. She keeps the bottle that he sent her for to, to this hour, and she will believe in his affection to the last moment of her life, said Mr. Gragrind. It seems to present two things to a person, don't it, Squire? said Mr. Sleary, musing as he looked down into the depths of his brandy and water. One, that there is a love in the world, not all self-interest, after all, but something very different. T'other, that it baith a way of its own, of calculating or not calculating, with somehow or another is at least as hard to give a name to as the wave of the dog-fizz. Mr. Gradgrind looked out of window and made no reply. Mr. Sleary emptied his glass and recalled the ladies. Cecilia, my dear, kiss me and good-bye. Miss Squire, to see you treating of her like a sister, and a sister that you trust and honor with all your heart and more, is a very pretty sight to me. I hope your brother may live to be better deserving of you and a greater comfort to you. Squire, take hands first and last. Don't be cross with us poor vagabonds. People must be amused. They can't be always a-learning, nor yet they can't be always a-working. They ain't made for it. You must have us, squire. Do the white thing, and the kind thing, too, and make the best of us, not the worst. And I never thought before, said Mr. Sleary, putting his head in at the door again to say it, that I was so much of a cackler. CHAPTER Nine, FINAL It is a dangerous thing to see anything in the sphere of a vain blusterer before the blame blusterer sees it himself. Mr. Bounderby felt that Mrs. Sparsett had audaciously anticipated him, and presumed to be wiser than he. Inappeasably indignant with her for her triumphant discovery of Mrs. Pegler, he turned this presumption, on the part of a woman in her dependent position, over and over in his mind, until it accumulated with turning like a great snowball. At last he made the discovery that to discharge this highly connected female, to have it in his power to say, she was a woman of family, and wanted to stick to me, but I wouldn't have it, and got rid of her, would be to get the utmost possible amount of crowning glory out of the connection, and at the same time to punish Mrs. Sparsett according to her deserts. Filled fuller than ever with this great idea, Mr. Bounderby came in to lunch, and sat himself down in the dining-room of former days, where his portrait was. Mrs. Sparsett sat by the fire, with her foot in the cotton stirrup, little thinking whether she was posting. Since the Pegler affair, this gentlewoman had covered her pity for Mr. Bounderby with a veil of quiet melancholy and contrition. In virtue thereof, it had become her habit to assume a woeful look, which woeful look she now bestowed upon her patron. "'What's the matter now, ma'am?' said Mr. Bounderby, in a very short, rough way. "'Pray, sir,' returned Mrs. Sparsett, "'do not bite my nose off.' "'Bite your nose off, ma'am?' repeated Mr. Bounderby. "'Your nose?' meaning 
as Mrs. Sparse had conceived that it was too developed a nose for that purpose. After which offensive implication, he cut himself a crust of bread, and threw the knife down with a noise. Mrs. Sparsit took her foot out of her stirrup, and said, "'Mr. Bounderby, sir!' "'Well, ma'am,' retorted Mr. Bounderby, "'what are you staring at?' "'May I ask, sir,' said Mrs. Sparsit, "'have you been ruffled this morning?' "'Yes, ma'am.' "'May I inquire, sir,' pursued the injured woman, "'whether I am the unfortunate cause of your having lost your temper?' "'Now, I'll tell you what, ma'am,' said Bounderby, "'I am not come here to be bullied. "'A female may be highly connected, "'but she can't be permitted to bother and badger a man in my position, "'and I am not going to put up with it.' "'Mr. Bounderby felt it necessary to get on, "'foreseeing that if he allowed of details he would be beaten. "'Mrs. Sparsett first elevated, then knitted her Coriolanian eyebrows, "'gathered up her work into its proper basket, and rose. "'Sir,' said she majestically, it is apparent to me that I am in your way at present. I will retire to my own apartment. Allow me to open the door, ma'am. Thank you, sir. I can do it for myself. You had better allow me, ma'am, said Bounderby, passing her, and getting his hand upon the lock, because I can take the opportunity of saying a word to you before you go. Mrs. Sparsett, ma'am, I rather think you are cramped here, do you know? It appears to me that under my humble roof there's hardly opening enough for a lady of your genius in other people's affairs. Mrs. Sparsett gave him a look of the darkest scorn, and said with great politeness, Really, sir? I have been thinking it over, you see, since the late affairs have happened, ma'am, said Bounderby, and it appears to my poor judgment— Oh! "'Oh, pray, sir,' Mrs. Sparsett interposed with sprightly cheerfulness, "'don't disparage your judgment. "'Everybody knows how unerring Mr. Bounderby's judgment is. "'Everybody has had proofs of it. "'It must be the theme of general conversation. "'Disparage anything in yourself but your judgment, sir,' said Mrs. Sparsett, laughing. "'Mr. Bounderby, very red and uncomfortable, resumed. "'It appears to me, ma'am, I say, "'that a different sort of establishment altogether "'would bring out a lady of your powers.' "'Such an establishment as your relation, Lady Scadgers. "'Now, don't you think you might find some affairs there, ma'am, to interfere with?' "'It never occurred to me before, sir,' returned Mrs. Sparsett. "'But now you mention it, should think it highly probable.' "'Then suppose you try, ma'am,' said Bounderby, "'laying an envelope with a check in it in her little basket. "'You can take your own time for going, ma'am, but perhaps in the meanwhile it will be more agreeable to a lady of your powers of mind to eat her meals by herself, and not to be intruded upon. I really ought to apologize to you, being only Josiah Bounderby of Coketown, for having stood in your light so long.' "'Pray don't name it, sir,' returned Mrs. Sparsett. "'If that portrait could speak, sir,' but it has the advantage over the original of not possessing the power of committing itself and disgusting others, it would testify that a long period has elapsed since I first habitually addressed it as the picture of a noodle. Nothing that a noodle does can awaken surprise or indignation. The proceedings of a noodle can only inspire contempt. Thus saying, Mrs. Sparsett, with her Roman features like a medal struck to commemorate her scorn of Mr. Bounderby, surveyed him fixedly from head to foot, swept disdainfully past him, and ascended the staircase. Mr. Bounderby closed the door, and stood before the fire, projecting himself after his old explosive manner into his portrait, and into futurity. Into how much of futurity? He saw Mrs. Sparsett fighting out a daily fight at the points of all the weapons in the female armory, with the grudging, smarting, 
peevish, tormenting Lady Scadgers, still laid up in bed with her mysterious leg, and gobbling her insufficient income down by about the middle of every quarter, in a mean little airless lodging, a mere closet for one, a mere crib for two. But did he see more? Did he catch any glimpse of himself, making a show of bitzer to strangers, as the rising young man, so devoted to his master's great merits, who had won young Tom's place, and had almost captured young Tom himself, in the times when by various rascals he was spirited away? Did he see any faint reflections of his own image, making a vainglorious will, whereby five-and-twenty humbugs, past five-and-fifty years of age, each taking upon himself the name Josiah Bounderby of Coketown, should forever dine in Bounderby Hall, for ever lodge in Bounderby Buildings, for ever attend a Bounderby Chapel, for ever go to sleep under a Bounderby Chaplain, for ever be supported out of a Bounderby Estate, and for ever nauseate all healthy stomachs with a vast amount of Bounderby Balderdash and Bluster? Had he any prescience of the day, five years to come, when Josiah Bounderby of Coketown was to die of a fit in the Coketown Street, and this same precious will was to begin its long career of quibble, plunder, false pretenses, vile example, little service, and much law? Probably not. Yet the portrait was to see it all out. Here was Mr. Gradgrind on the same day, and in the same hour, sitting thoughtful in his own room. How much of futurity did he see? Did he see himself, a white-haired, decrepit man, bending his hitherto inflexible theories to appointed circumstances, making his facts and figures subservient to faith, hope, and charity, and no longer trying to grind that heavenly trio in his dusty little mills? Did he catch sight of himself, therefore much despised by his late political associates? Did he see them, in the era of its being quite settled, that the national dustmen have only to do with one another, and owe no duty to an abstraction called a people, taunting the honourable gentleman with this and that and with what not five nights a week until the small hours of the morning? Probably he had that much foreknowledge, knowing his men. Here was Louisa on the night of the same day, watching the fire as in days of yore, though with a gentler and a humbler face. How much of the future might arise before her vision? Broadsides in the streets, signed with her father's name, exonerating the late Stephen Blackpool, weaver, from misplaced suspicion, and publishing the guilt of his own son with such extenuation as his years and temptation, he could not bring himself to add his education, might beseech, were of the present. So Stephen Blackpool's tombstone, with her father's record of his death, was almost of the present, for she knew it was to be. These things she could plainly see. But how much of the future? A working woman, christened Rachel, after a long illness once again appearing at the ringing of the factory bell, and passing to and fro at the set hours among the Coketown hands, a woman of pensive beauty, always dressed in black, but sweet-tempered and serene, and even cheerful, who of all the people in the place alone appeared to have compassion on a degraded, drunken wretch of her own sex, who was sometimes seen in the town secretly begging of her, and crying to her, a woman working, ever working, but content to do it, and preferring to do it as her natural lot, until she should be too old to labor any more. Did Louisa see this? Such a thing was to be. A lonely brother, many thousands of miles away, writing on paper blotted with tears, that her words had too soon come true, and that all the treasures in the world would be cheaply bartered for a sight of her dear face. At length this brother, coming nearer home with hope of seeing her, and being delayed by illness, and then a letter in a strange hand saying, He died in hospital, of fever, such a day, and died in penitence and love of you, 
his last word being your name. Did Louisa see these things? Such things were to be. Herself again a wife, a mother, lovingly watchful of her children, ever careful that they should have a childhood of the mind no less than a childhood of the body, as knowing it to be even a more beautiful thing, and a possession, any hoarded scrap of which, is a blessing, and happiness to the wisest. Did Louisa see this? Such a thing was never to be. But, happy sissies, happy children loving her, all children loving her, she, grown learned in childish lore, thinking no innocent and pretty fancy ever to be despised, trying hard to know her humbler fellow-creatures, and to beautify their lives of machinery and reality with those imaginative graces and delights without which the heart of infancy will wither up, the sturdiest physical manhood will be morally stark death, and the plainest national prosperity figures can show will be the writing on the wall. She holding this course as part of no fantastic vow, or bond, or brotherhood, or sisterhood, or pledge, or covenant, or fancy dress, or fancy fare, but simply as a duty to be done. Did Louisa see these things of herself? These things were to be. Dear reader, it rests with you and me whether in our two fields of action similar things shall be or not. Let them be. We shall sit with lighter bosoms on the hearth to see the ashes of our fires turn gray and cold. End of section 22 Recording by Joseph Ugaritz, Brooklyn, New York, www.mountebank.org. End of Hard Times by Charles Dickens.